beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but as I observe what's going on right now in the world of today, I get a feeling of powerlessness and despair. Many things are happening, including the pandemic right now. Makes us kind of sad, I think. And a lot of other things are happening, which only a few years ago seemed unthinkable. There is an increased hatred for God and his people and everything they stand for. Biblical virtues, which were once held in honor, are now ridiculed and discarded. Biblical principles are constantly under attack, and our freedoms are more and more being curtailed. What's this going to lead to? How is this going to affect our lives further, the lives of our children and our grandchildren and our own lives? How is this going to affect the church? Where is this all headed? It's a bit scary, isn't it? So for comfort, I turned to the book of Revelation. This revelation was written by the Apostle John after he received the vision from God on the island of Patmos. The glorified Jesus Christ gave him that vision to encourage the seven churches in Asia who were also going through some exceptionally difficult times. Many Christians lost their jobs, their reputations, their properties, and many of their freedoms. Some were even put into jail or even killed. So these people suffered great hardships. Why did that happen? Well, because the world, the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans, they hated them. The Jews hated them because many of the newly converted Christians were from among them, which meant that those Christians no longer practiced what they practiced before. For they no longer wanted to play along with society as the establishment Jews did. They did not want to compromise their faith in order to receive the same privileges and exemptions and freedoms as the Jews. The establishment, non-converted Jews, despised them for it. They felt condemned by the Christians, just like the Pharisees felt condemned by Jesus Christ and his followers. They didn't want anything to do with them. And these Jews made sure that the secular powers that be also went along with that. So it was a collective quest for power, a power grab, and it was all political. They didn't want anybody to threaten their way of life. And they needed each other in order to accomplish that. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Let's just cooperate together and in this way get out of life as much as we can and let's make sure that nobody stands in our way. Congregation, that's the way of the world. 
And so Roman citizens and all the other Gentiles in the province of Asia, where the seven churches were located, went along with such intolerance. As a result, the rulers and all those in cahoots with them made sure that the Christians were not able to participate in the economic prosperity, for it was a prosperous time. The province of Asia served as a supplier of all kinds of commodities to Rome, as they had been doing for a long time. At the time that John received his revelation, the province of Asia was flourishing. There was lots of work, there was lots of money to go around. But to participate in the economy, you needed to belong to various trade guilds and all kinds of guilds. And those guilds required emperor worship and the worship of the guild gods. Although there were some Christians who did compromise, faithful Christians did not. They did not want to serve two masters, mammon, money, and God. They knew it's either the one or the other. But now, in order to encourage these seven churches in Asia, the glorious and victorious Jesus Christ gives a most comforting vision to John, and therefore also to us. In the preceding chapters, the glorified Jesus first gave a direct message to each church, commending them for their faithfulness, while at the same time warning them not to go along with the evils of society. And the last thing that Jesus said to the seventh church, to the Christians in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, those who persevere will rule with God forever and ever. They will be sitting on their own throne around the throne of God who's in the middle. And that's now the picture that is painted in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. And brothers and sisters, it's a beautiful picture. It's a gorgeous picture. That's what I want to preach to you about this morning. I will preach to you about the glorious throne of God. And then we encounter around this throne, in the first place, God's majesty. In the second place, God's holiness. And then finally, God's glory. John begins this chapter with the words, After this I looked. The same expression is found throughout Revelation. And we might be tempted to think that in this way we get a chronological rendition of what takes place in the, in the future. First this will happen, and that will happen, and then that, and so on. But that's clearly not the case. No, the visions are not about successive events. After this means that Jesus now comes with a, another revelation, a new revelation. And it's important to highlight this. It is not so that Revelation describes chronological events in the history of the church. No, these are visions of what will happen to the churches throughout the ages. 
All kinds of things will happen in the first, between the first coming of Christ and the second. Throughout the ages, along with a lot of good things, there will also some horrible things that will happen. But the book of Revelation wants to emphasize that no matter what happens here on earth, God is always on his throne. He is always in control of events and all and everything else. He is in control of history, even as the mountains fall into the sea, as we know from Psalm 46. He is in control of your life, my life, and he will turn whatever comes our way to our good. And that's why we have this chapter here about the throne of God. John hears the same voice that he heard in chapter 1, verse 10. And now that voice says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And John is invited to come up to the dwelling place of God, and immediately that happens. John's spirit is taken over by the Holy Spirit, and in a vision, he is taken right up into heaven. And what does he see? Well, he sees there the glorious and magnificent throne of God. The throne is clearly of central importance. For in this chapter and the next, which together form a unity, the throne is mentioned no less than 17 times. And it is from the perspective of the throne that John draws a picture for us of what heaven looks like. It's magnificent. As you will see, it is the same configuration as the tabernacle of the Old Testament in the temple. For one thing, the throne, like the ark in the Holy of Holies, stands central. But there is someone seated on it. It is clear that he who is seated on the throne is God the Father himself. But no description is given of him. For that's not allowed. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 16. It says there that God alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And so we are not given a description of God himself. But we do get an amazing picture of God's beauty and power and centrality to everything. He is shown in brilliant and beautiful light. And he has the appearance of jasper, which has the brilliance like that of a diamond. And he also has the appearance of a stone called carnelian, which is either dark red or orange red or reddish brown in color. It is a glorious revelation of God in the center of everything. For everything else forms a circle around him. First, we have a rainbow around his throne. Now, what does the rainbow remind us of? I'm sure that you boys and girls know what it refers to. It refers to the flood. It reminds us of the flood. And it reminds us that God is in control of all creation. The covenantal sign of the rainbow reminds us of God's 
faithfulness and assurance that nothing happens without his will. Floods and earthquakes and all kinds of calamities, including pandemics, can happen. But nothing happens outside of God's will and knowledge and plan. And what is the greatest plan that God has for his creation? You know, well, the birth of his son. The whole Bible points to his birth in numerous ways. The Old Testament points to him especially through the sacrifice in the tabernacle and the temple. The blood of the sacrificial lamb animals look forward to the sacrifice on the cross of the Son of God for all those who believe in him. For that reason, the book of Revelation also mentions his birth. It says in chapter 12, verse 5, that the woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Satan did not want that child to be born. He wanted to destroy that child. And he tried everything in order to make that happen. But God would not let it happen. This child had to go to the cross and to die and to rise again from the dead. In spite of all the evil planned for him, Satan could not snatch him away and claim him and all those who belong to him in faith. Wonderful to know that. It's wonderful for those Asian churches to know that too, for us. You see, that's the way it's been throughout the ages. Also today, we may worry and we may fret about what's happening here on earth right now. And we may be afraid of the earthly powers that be, but... They're only pawns in the hands of God. God is in the center. He's always in control. And everything revolves around him. But John is not finished. He also tells us that before the thrones are seven torches of fire. Do you know what they are? Well, they are the seven spirits of God. And those seven spirits represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday you hear the words taken from Revelation 1 when you are greeted by the seven spirits. Here in this passage you are reminded that those seven spirits reside before the throne of God. The picture of the Holy Spirit here is actually based on Zechariah 4 in which the prophet sees the church as a lampstand, as it says in verse 2, with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. The seven churches, representing the church of all ages, have as their lights the seven spirits of God, referring to the fullness of of the Holy Spirit. And so we do not walk in darkness. John goes on with his vision. 
He says in verse 6 that before the throne is also a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And all these elements go back to the Old Testament temple, for there you would find not only the seven-branched lamp, but also the laver, which is also referred to as the sea. It is in the laver, which means wash basin, the sea, in which the priest would wash his hands and his feet, for he would have to be ritually clean in order to serve before God. And so the sea before the throne of God ultimately refers to the blood of Christ, through whom, through which our sins are forgiven, and through which we are washed to be made as white as snow. And, this, and in this way, John is given a vision of the triune God in heaven. For all three persons of the Trinity are there. The Lamb, as represented by the sea of glass, and who, as we know from the following chapter, is about to take his seat at God, at God the Father's right hand. And the Holy Spirit, as represented by the seven torches of fire, and the Father who sits on his throne. Almighty God is present here in all his might and glory and majesty. But he's not just sitting there. He's not passive. No, he is a God who acts. For what else does John tell us? He says that from the throne of God come thunder and lightning. And that's a reference to God's judgment and to God's holiness. And note well that the thunder and lightning come before the storms. It indicates that no one and nothing can harm him and all those who belong to him and who are sitting around his throne. No one can harm them. He also speaks. For his voice is heard. His voice, his thunder and his lightning portray his awesome majesty and holiness. All this reminds us of the time just before the Lord God gave his commandments at Mount Sinai. For as we know from Exodus 19, verse 16, at that time also thunder and lightning were heard when he spoke to Moses. No one could touch the mountain. Anyone who would do so would surely die. Only those who have been declared to be without sin can approach his holy throne. All others will be struck down. And that is why it is wonderful to see that he also tells us who else sits around the throne of God. But God is not alone in heaven. No, around his throne are 24 thrones. And on those 24 thrones are seated 24 elders. They are counted worthy to be there in heaven with the almighty and awesome God himself. For they are wearing white clothes, which shows that they have been washed in the blood of Christ. What a great and wonderful blessing. You know why? Well, because of whom those 24 elders represent. They represent the church of all ages, from the Old to the New Testament. And therefore, the 24 elders refer to you and me as well. 
It is as if you and I are already sitting around the throne of God. And that's the picture that our Lord Jesus wants those seven churches in Asia to have as they endure persecution and hardships and even death. And that's the picture that he wants all of us to have as we face our own troubles, even death. No matter what, through faith we too are worthy to sit around God's throne. Wonderful, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, that's also the triumphant and wonderful picture that God wants you and me to have. You and I will be sitting on our own throne around the throne of God. That's great. That's also what those loved ones of ours who died in the Lord are doing right now. Think about them. Think about where they are right now. What a great comfort. But why 24? And how do they represent us? Well, throughout Scripture, the number 24 is quite significant. In the first place, we know from 1 Chronicles 24 that there were 24 divisions of priests in the temple. That was the complete contingent of the priesthood. Those 24 divisions represented the total sacrificial service before God. And so, no doubt, those 24 elders before the throne of God represent the priesthood in service to God. You and I, through faith, are also priests, as well as prophets and kings. But there is more. At the end of the book of Revelation, we read about the New Jerusalem. And there we are also told about a multiple of twelves. It says in chapter 21, verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The New Testament church is represented by the twelve apostles. And the Old Testament church is represented by the twelve tribes of Israel. Together they add up to the number 24. And so together they comprise the fullness of the church of God. Now those 24 elders represent us because we too belong to the church. The church from the beginning of the world to the end. And now you have the emerging picture. Just try to visualize it. The throne of God is in the center. God the Father is seated there, and so is the Son who is represented by the sea, and who, as you can see from chapter 5, is on the way to the throne, and the Holy Spirit, who is the light of the church, as represented by the seven torches. Just imagine, once we are promoted to heavenly glory, you and I, we too will be among them. Now we have a picture of God in all his majesty and glory and you and I sharing in this. But wait, there's more. The Lord God is not just a majestic God, he is also a holy God. And John also describes that for us. We come to the second point. As you know, God's holiness refers to his purity, to his absolute separation from sin. 
And the four living creatures spoken of in the last part of verse 6 make sure that his holiness is maintained. But look at what we're told about them. These creatures are covered with eyes in front and in back. And each of them has six wings. And those wings are full of eyes all around, even under their wings. Why are they depicted that way? Well, to indicate that nothing will escape their attention. And they are there day and night. They watch the entrance into heaven and guard the throne of God. No one can slip by them. God's holiness may not be compromised in any way. Nothing unclean may enter or approach. When you study the prophecies of Ezekiel in the chapters 1 and 10 and Isaiah 6, then you will note many similarities. As a matter of fact, you cannot understand Revelation without being familiar with those prophecies. As you study those passages, you will note that the four living creatures are in reality cherubs, angels. But they also guarded the entrance into the Garden of Eden, and they also adorned the cover of the Ark of God, guarding the Holy of Holies. And now we see that in heaven it is their duty to guard the throne of God in heaven. But that's not all they do. They also serve before the throne. And that's why they have six wings. They're very mobile and they're very quick to serve. Very quick to serve. And John tells us that they have features like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Those features indicate their courage, their strength, their intelligence, and their great mobility. In these capacities, they protect and serve before the throne of God. But they do more. They also sing. For John hears the voices of the four living creatures who never cease their singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. That is also what Isaiah heard when he was called to be a prophet. He also heard that triple holy. Isaiah had to go into the midst of the people to proclaim the judgment of God. For the people of God had defiled themselves with their sins, and they would not repent. Isaiah, as did all the prophets of old, had to remind man of their sins, for God punishes sin. He wants to maintain his holiness. And that, beloved, is as true today as it has always been. God maintains his holiness. No matter what. We live in a filthy world. We are filthy people ourselves. And we live at a time where God's holiness is increasingly trampled upon. Man does not want to observe God's commandments. He wants to do whatever feels good at the moment. And so he commits shameful act upon shameful act. Sexual immorality and all kinds of other immorality is not only condoned, but actively promoted. Look at what's going around us in the world. And look at ourselves as well. Of course, we want to keep God's commandments and we do our best. But we too are sinful people. But now God shows himself for who he is. He shows that in the precious pages of the Bible. And so we in our lives as Christians in the midst of a sinful world 
must do our utmost to reflect God's holiness and his absolute absence from sin. We should never give up. We must fight a good fight of the faith. For we are sinful and we are incapable to keep God's laws as he requires. But why? Why do we need to show ourselves to be holy? Because we are already made holy through the blood of Christ. And so also others may see that we have the beginning of the obedience that God requires from us. So that the world may see that we love God and that we believe in him and that we take his commandments seriously. And we do this in the knowledge that we have already been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and that we have been made holy through him. Ultimately, it's all God's doing. He makes us holy through the blood of the Lamb. And those four living creatures never stop proclaiming God's holiness. In their song, they refer to God as the Lord God. That name Lord refers to his Old Testament name Yahweh, the God of the covenant. He said he would do what he would do. He will be true to himself and also to those who belong to him, namely his people, you and I too. And furthermore, in their song, God's greatness is also praised. For they refer to him as the Almighty. And that name indicates his almighty power. In his almighty power, he will bring this world from its beginning to its end. He created it all and he will also bring it to its final destination. Jesus is coming again, brothers and sisters. Make no mistake about it. And then all sin and all the effects of sin will be burned away with will be burned away. As we look at what's happening daily around us, such as the evil intentions of the powerful institutions in this world and the political unrest all around us in our country and in the country next door, the powerful country of the United States of America. And as we look at the brokenness of our lives and all the many other things that disturb us, and over which we seem to have so little control, it is easy to think that God is powerless. After all, why does all this evil around us happen? Why does God, if he is so almighty, not interfere? An age-old question. People ask it many times. We ask, why does he give an inoperable brain tumor to a young man like Sam Marcus, who, humanly speaking, still has his whole life in front of him. Why did he not stop that disease that disabled or killed my loved one? Why did he allow me to be abused? Why does he not stop the ravages of disease and hunger? Why does he not stop people from blaspheming his name? Why does he allow evil politicians to control our lives? We have many questions. And yet, beloved, here in this picture of God in heaven, we see the almighty God. The four living creatures sing of his almighty power. 
This is not a world without God. No, he knows exactly what is happening here on earth. And he has all things in his control. He cares. That's why he gave his son. He cares deeply. And he is bringing you and me and his whole creation to the end of times. Be patient. He will come. And that is what he wants the seven churches and us today to remember. And that is the picture that he wants us to have in our minds. For to him does not only belong the power, but also the glory. And of that glory, not only the angels sing, but also man. We come to the third point. Revelation 4 ends with the song of the 24 elders who represent the church of God. That is, all those who believe in God and who died in the Lord. And what do they see? Well, they give us the perspective of what we will see once we are promoted to heavenly glory. Those elders see that God brings all things to their glorious destination. Brothers and sisters, young people, elderly, middle-aged, all of us, we may struggle here on earth. There is turmoil and mayhem, disease, death. Things are always in a state of flux. We live in a broken world, a world full of pain and sorrow. Time and again, loved ones are taken away from us. It's a world full of sin against we have to struggle every day. And that's why the elders in the church are constantly dealing with their own sins and the sins of the congregation. They struggle along with the people. They agonize about when to admonish and how to admonish, when to apply discipline and when not. They have to deal with heresies and wrong practices creeping into the church. Constantly they have to be on the alert. And so do we all. But that work is not in vain. In the vision of John, we see that the elders, together with the whole church of God, will receive their reward. They will be sitting on thrones. They will receive their crowns. And the text says that the elders lay their crowns before the throne of God. Does that mean that they don't want those crowns? No, not at all. It is an acknowledgement that they have received their reward from God alone. And thereby they attribute ownership to God. They belong to him. And they give thanks to him for what he has done. For he is also the one who has equipped them for for their task. He is the one who gives them everything they need. And so what do we do as we reflect on our own situation right now here on earth? Well, we continue to do what we must do. Namely, to worship God in every way possible. And we hang on to him through all trials and tribulations. We hang on to him also during times of prosperity. We do not depend on earthly splendor or riches because nothing is compared to the riches that we have with God. And we do not have to be afraid, brothers and sisters, or despondent. No, we have every reason to be full of joy. For God is on his throne. He rules. He is the center of everything. He is the center of the universe. And as long as you and I put our trust in him, nothing and no one can do us harm.
because God is on his throne. All is well. To him be the glory. Amen.